So uh, our passage this morning are part of a verse because we're in one of those series. We were in a series in Acts for a while where it was like, um, oh, by the way, my time starts now, just so everybody knows, okay? That's, this is it. This is the beginning. I don't, that doesn't count all of you out there who are like, hey, come on, man. Like, make this easy for me while I'm sitting on my couch. Um, I'm trying as hard as I can, but you got you to work with me. Um, we were in a series in Acts where we were covering like full chapters at a time, and now we're in a series where we're covering part of a verse at a time. And it's because of the nature of this letter and these instructions. We wanted to take a week on each one of these. This morning we're in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, which says, it, uh, meaning love, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now you hear this and we go, why in the world would uh, people in trying to love each other and being in community together and being in a family together, why in the world would people rejoice in wrongdoing uh, and need to be reminded that they should rejoice in the truth or in the good things that happen? And the reality is, uh, uh, well, this is because of the way that people are, because of the way that we are. I want to give you an example of exactly why this is so important. If it seems strange to you, like why on earth would this kind of a thing ever happen or ever factor in? It's in Jonah. Uh, We read about something that we can all relate to very well in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah's the prophet that God calls to, uh, to, to share uh, the good news of him and his forgiveness for the people of Nineveh if they repent. These are part of the Assyrian people. They've been killing and persecuting and torturing Israelites for generations, and they are the sworn enemies of the Jewish people. And Jonah is being asked to go and to bring a message of hope and forgiveness to the enemies of his people. And uh, he's too afraid to go. He doesn't want to go. He's probably part of its fear, part of its like, God, these are our enemies. Why would you ever save them? This is what the one thing that, that we could count on in all of our suffering was that at least we knew we were the good guys, which meant in the end you guys are going to pay. And we read about this after he finally goes and he ministers to the people of Nineveh. We read this in, in Jonah chapter 3. Uh, In verse 6, it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we read this and we go, man, how great is God, right? How good is he and how awesome is it that even these people who are sworn enemies of God's people, who are killing them, and I can't tell you the kinds of things that the Ninevites did because that would quickly move this from like a PG-ish type sermon to like a pretty, pretty borderline rated R type sermon. Because the things the Assyrians, the Ninevites did to the Israelites were so atrocious and so horrible. How amazing is it, right, that God would even forgive those people? Uh, well, that's not how Jonah feels. 
because uh, you read in the, ne- in the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This passage is one that we talk about when we do our sending school here at OCEC, which is sort of a kind of an evangelism training that we have. We talk about this passage because I think it's one of the parts of the Bible that remind us um, that even some of the oldest portions of Scripture that we might think are kind of detached from the way that, that real people feel today or situations we go through show us that, uh, that God's Word uh, understands the way that we feel and that it reflects what is true in the hearts of man, that truth that never changes, which is this, right? Uh, is it good news for us when our enemies, our sworn enemies, are forgiven and get to have the same hope that we have, for most of us in most cases, no, it's not. That is not good news. That is something that is, that, is, that is good, that we ought to rejoice in because it is truth, right? The truth is that God forgives. He forgives anyone who repents, that there is no sin that is so great that it, that it divides us from God permanently. And yet, as much as that is something that we should celebrate because it's true and because it's good and it brings hope for all of us and all of those in the world, the honest truth is we don't celebrate that. That just like Jonah, that we would wish for evil upon enemies in that situation. When we talk about this in sending school, we talk about how uh, this is how most of us would feel in Jonah's situation. And I've even challenged people and said, uh, if you read this passage in Jonah, and, or if you found yourself reading this maybe even the first time, let's just say, and you went, how could he possibly feel that way? That's so terrible, Right? then you might want to reflect on how self-aware you are. Because if you don't relate to Jonah in this situation here, then you might not be very good at being honest with yourself about how you really feel. Because the fact is, uh, the more you try to do good and try to be a person of God, the more aware you are of what evil might look like and and the more enemies might rise up against you and keep you from doing that very thing um, as the forces of even darkness, God's, God's word tells us, like oppose us and come against us. Life will be difficult and hard. And it is so easy and so natural to at least not want your very enemies or the people that are bringing about the evil and destruction in the world to experience God's grace. In this instance, we can totally understand what it looks like to want something bad to happen and to rejoice in it, right? To say that would be so satisfying to know that those who have done evil for so long, who have hurt so many people, uh, who have disgraced God and spoken against him, whatever you want to say, it would be so satisfying to know that they finally got what was coming to them. We understand what it's like to rejoice when something evil happens, when evil happens. And this is what uh, the, the Bible's talking about here. It's talking about what happens when a group of people uh, get 
a little too excited about when they find bad things in the lives of others rather than getting excited about the good things that they find. And Paul's reminding the church saying that's not what love is. The people of Corinth uh, are in a church that is experiencing a lot of problems, and we've been talking about them through this series, um, and, uh, and, and, and because of that, it's a pretty harsh letter to the church. It's why Paul's talking to them about love, why he's saying, I'm gonna, I need to remind you guys what love looks like and what it doesn't look like. And what we've said is that love is actually pretty simple, pretty basic, right? Love is, uh, love is patient and love is kind, and, uh, and that's it. Uh, then there's all these things that love isn't. And when he talks about the things love isn't, he's speaking to a lot of what's going on in the church at the time. He's saying it's not this thing you're doing or this thing you're doing or this thing you're doing. Uh, again, these things that you're doing cause you to ignore patience and kindness and think, oh, no, 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 but these things are love too. And I'm saying to you, no, they're not love too. And what he says here is he says that love isn't going to rejoice at wrongdoing when it sees it in someone's life. It's not going to be happy when it sees evil. A lot of translations say things like uh, 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 sin or unrighteousness or evil um, or lies, but they all ultimately are surrounded, uh, they're, they're kind of like revolving around the same idea, which is, you know what love doesn't do is it doesn't say, you know, I find satisfaction in seeing that this person here is doing something wrong. Why on earth would the church need to be told that? Because one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem going on in the church in Corinth at this time is they're divided. It's a church filled with division. They've gotten divided about all kinds of things. Uh, They basically focus so much on who's better than who that they have found ways to be divided and to be against each other, even down to which leader uh, certain groups of people follow. And the really interesting thing about this is that the leaders themselves are not the ones at fault. Paul praises uh, these leaders in the church, but then he at the same time says, you guys are fighting over, I follow Apollos, and I follow this other person, and I follow Paul. Um, and he says, you guys are wrong in doing that. The leaders aren't wrong. They're doing what, I've, what God's called them to do, and they're doing what they should be doing. But you guys are even using the people that are trying to teach you truth and what is righteous, and you're, you're finding ways to make enemies in this group of people that you're doing church with. We we, we look at that and we go, how on earth could that be possible, right? Uh, uh, One of the things that we're finding in this series that is a real eye-opener for us is that it is, and Pastor Matt, Matt has been talking about this the last couple of weeks specifically, he's been talking about how shocking it is that we seem capable of doing uh, things that are, that are so wrong to the people that are so close to us that we believe that we love. I remember when I was a youth pastor starting out in ministry, there were a few youth pastors that I really admired and uh, really looked up to. Um, and uh, there was one in particular who, um, what, I, what I appreciated about him was he was, a very, uh, he was a very honest and, I thought, real person. He didn't have these two sides to himself, which um, I found as I was starting out in ministry, I encountered a lot. I encountered people who seemed one way when they were up in front of people, and then when 
when you talked to them as a person privately, they were a totally different way. And that was because they were afraid that if they were, uh, you know, themselves, let's say, or sort of normal, uh, that they would be harshly judged and criticized. And because people expected them to sort of act a certain way. And people would even be okay with this duality that they would see in a lot of pastors. They would, they would be fine with that. They'd be like, that's how it works, right? That's what we expect to see, and that's fine. Well, there was one youth pastor in particular that I really appreciated, um, and I really looked up to. He was older than me because he was uh, a, a, very, uh, a very real person. He was the same person in both situations. And that doesn't mean that he did and said things that were wrong, uh, and that was good. It just means that he didn't feel the need to uh, sort of seem more spiritual than he was. And because of that, I really trusted him on a level that I didn't trust a lot of other people, I found. When he said something, I believed he was being genuine, real, and honest. Well, uh, you know, he ended up leaving, moving out of town, and uh, starting a church plant actually up here in Portland. And he planted a church and uh, was, was looking to God to, like, bless this endeavor of stepping out in faith. And I came to realize and find out along with everyone else that it turned out he had been having an extramarital affair for, uh, for years um, and, uh, and, and I was so devastated, and I was devastated because as I reflected on this, I thought, I've known people, even in ministries, unfortunately, who have fallen in sin, who have done things like this before, but I would often go, oh, you know, that doesn't surprise me, or oh, well, I'm not like that person anyway, so I would never do that, and what I realized when this happened with, with this pastor I knew, having been such close friends with him, was I realized at that moment that, that if he's capable of doing something like that. That that means that I'm capable of doing something like that. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to do something like that. But it was the moment that I realized that we are capable of doing some pretty terrible things because we're all sinful. It doesn't matter how good of a person you seem to be. It doesn't matter how hard you try to live for Jesus. That doesn't change the fact that you're still capable of doing some pretty atrocious things. And in fact, if I fool myself and I think I would never do that, then I might allow myself to get into situations where I sin, where I, where I foolishly, where I'm being reckless because I have such a high opinion of myself. And it helped me a lot to be able to say to myself in that moment, if he's capable of doing this, then I'm capable of even doing it, which is why I need to be careful in how I live my life and what I do moving forward. Infidelity is an example of one of the most shocking things that we can do against a very person that we love the most. And as I've talked with couples who have walked through this, it is such a painful reality that we are so messed up as people that we really can do some pretty atrocious things to those that are supposed to be the ones that are easiest for us to love and be faithful to. Matt has done a great job in the last couple of weeks of kind of illustrating how this is true, right? We get comfortable with the people in our families, and so we treat them the worst because we know that they're already stuck with us or that, or that we're not worried about how we appear in their eyes as much as other people. In the very same way, we're seeing that, uh, that learning how to love well isn't something that just applies to the people that are, we think, hard to love. In fact, it's possible that, the, that, that some of the people that we need to work on loving the most are not our enemies, are not the people that we think are completely different from us, but it's the people in our own lives that we've taken for granted and that we've said, oh, it's easy for me to love them because that's just something I do all the time without thinking. In the very same way, 
what Paul's pointing out here in the church is something that they've begun to do. They have begun to, with the very people of God around them, they have begun to look at others, at each other, and say, I see something wrong in your life, and I rejoice that I see that. Why on earth would we do that? Why on earth would we ever look at other people that we're close with? Because isn't it true that we do that? Isn't it true, if we're honest with ourselves, just like, you, you, listen, you can say, oh, I never do that. I never do that. That's terrible. And, you know, it's like, fine. I can't tell you that, I, you know, I'm not you. I'm not living inside your head or inside your heart. I can't tell you everything that you do. But uh, you can say that about each one of these things that we talk about, and that's fine. You don't have to think about it or deal with it maybe in your heart or in your life. But the truth is that, as crazy as it sounds, it is true that most of us get comfortable with the people around us in our lives, and we stop caring about how we treat them so much. Uh, many of us can actually call people a part of our family, see them every day, live life with them, <clears throat> and yet for one reason or another, when we find out that they are doing something bad, or when we find out that bad things have happened in their lives, <clears throat> that we can find ourselves actually feeling happy about that. I mean, how messed up is that, right? But it's true. It's the same thing as being envious of a brother, right? Somebody that you're so close with, you should want them to have what they have, but instead, what does envy do? Envy causes you to uh, want what they have, and maybe even worse, want them to not have that very thing. These are the things that we're capable of doing. Why would we do something like this? I think that the biggest reason why we do this is because we actually, in some sick way, find value about ourselves, and we even find unity with other people as we identify what's wrong in the lives of people out there. When Ellie and I were first married, uh, we went on our honeymoon, and uh, we, uh, were, we went to, to Mammoth, which was this kind of ski resort area, and we got married in the winter, and we learned now in subsequent years that there's not a whole lot to do in the winter uh, when you go places, you know, there's like snow, and it's cold, and if you don't have a cool snow place, then it's just kind of like bad, bad time to go on, you know, you're not going to go to an island somewhere, stuff like that, we don't have that kind of money. So we learned very quickly, we, 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 we discovered um, what was ultimately this like very first in marriage shared uh, passion that we had as a couple, and it was early Tom Hanks movies, because the place that we were staying had a library in the lobby, and they had a ton of movies that you could rent and check out, and a ton of them were Tom Hanks movies, and we started watching through uh, all of the Tom Hanks movies. One of the best ones, the one that I love maybe the most, is a movie called The Burbs, okay? And The Burbs is a movie uh, with, uh, here you see up here on the top, it is about a bunch of guys that live on a street, and they couldn't be more different. You have your Bruce Dern, which is your, like, uh, sort of grisly uh, Vietnam uh, war veteran who raises his flag every day on a flagpole and is, like, meticulously with military precision keeping his yard, and so he's mad at everybody for not looking that way on their yard. You've got the young pizza guy who, uh, who is just all up in everybody's business, and you've got the neighbor that's always coming over and eating your food and talking to you way too much, and then you've got the normal guy, which is, like, Tom Hanks. These guys couldn't be more different, and in a lot of ways, they... Uh, wear on each other and get on each other's nerves, but this movie is about what brings them together. 
And what brings them together is this. There's a spooky house on the street, some new neighbors have moved in, and they're pretty sure that these people are killing people and maybe even burying bodies in their backyard. And uh, there's this great scene in the movie when the two guys are talking and the dog keeps bringing a bone back to one of them and he keeps throwing it. The dog's bringing it back and he's throwing it. And then they realize that the bone is a femur and they start screaming. And this is one of the best Tom Hanks things. He's a good screamer. And they just do this for like 15 seconds. They scream because they think this is our neighbor Walter that we haven't seen in two weeks right here, this bone we're throwing to our dog. I love this movie because um, this movie illustrates something that I have actually found is very true of groups of people, which is this. We seem to have this ability to unite most easily when it's against something. Right? A lot of the differences in us, a lot of the things in us that normally we get hung up on, have an ability to sort of melt away when we can identify a common enemy. Now, uh, this is true of people and has been true for so many years. The fact is, uh, it is easy for us to uh, look at other people and say, well, look at what that guy's doing, look at what those people are doing, and in doing that, to actually find some kind of camaraderie with others. I've been amazed at how easy it is to break the ice with people that I'm just getting to know if we begin to talk about something negative. If we begin to talk about something that we don't like, something that's going on in the world, something that's going on in politics, something that's going on in our neighborhood that we don't like. Uh, Ellie and I learned this when we started, uh, before we even had kids. We started, uh, we had a dog, as most people practice on, an, on a dog. Uh, it took us like three dogs to practice on until we can get things good enough to have kids. But then uh, we, would, we would go to the dog park. And you go to the dog park, and you're like, how is there going to be drama at a dog park? But there is. And people would always stand around, and they'd be like, oh, there's that one dog. There are all those people. They're always doing that with their dog, you know. And, the, like, we realize, wait, this is a thing that's going to happen. It happens with kids. It happens at school. There's something about all of us gathering over here and saying, what's the deal with that guy? What's going on with that guy? In fact, the problems we have with other people bring us closer together, it seems, more naturally than the things that we like, the things that we admire, the things that we love, the things that we want to see. It's easier for us to talk about what we don't like than to talk, especially with strangers, about the things that we like. I have learned in my, uh, you know, incredibly long life, I have learned some incredible tips, some tricks for how to shortcut the process of spiritual growth. And I'd like to share those with you guys today because that's kind of the format in which I think this is best communicated. Uh, it's not often that a pastor is going to give you a shortcut, that they're going to say, um, but I'm, I'm very wise and, I, and I'm very insightful. And because of that, I can honestly just give you guys some sort of very quick tips that will help you in your spiritual growth uh, excel beyond the average person. We're going to call them Ed's Fast Track to Spiritual Success, okay? If you uh, take these two pieces of advice, you will find a quicker and easier way to be a spiritually mature person. You won't have to do all the hard work. You won't have to put all the years in. You could probably skip a lot of praying, a lot of Bible reading, and stuff like that if you just follow these two rules that I have found are proven to work, Okay? So this is Ed's Fast Track to Spiritual Success. Number one, how to be a good person. 
right? Anybody who wants to be a good Christian, anybody who, you know, cares about following Jesus, you know, is like, I want to be a good person, you know, uh, that, that seems to be what God wants for us to look like in the world. People look at us, they say, there's a good person, you know, maybe, maybe they have something that I want, that, that I need, right? They're an example of what's right with this world, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort, it seems. You got to get over a lot of bad stuff. So are there any easy shortcut ways, Ed, in all your infinite wisdom to be a good person? And I have discovered that, yes, there are. If you want to be a good person quickly without having to do any of the hard work, all you have to do is point out a bad person, okay? If you can do this, you are instantly a good person without having to do any work. My goodness, have I seen the truth of this in my life, right? Uh, because uh, we all have a desire to, to be a certain way. We want others to think that we, are, that we are good, that we are capable, that we are intelligent, that we are mature. And we often seek to establish this very identity of ours, not through hard work, not through diligence, but instead through ridicule and disdain of other people. What do I mean by that? I mean something very simple. It is a lot easier to lower the way everyone else looks than to yourself try to be better. We find this out very early on in life, right? That, that life seems to be a curve. The grading scale in life seems to be a curve. And uh, I learned this in my life, that, that I, I would find myself meeting people, getting to know them, becoming friends with people, and then always walking away saying, you know what I don't like about them is this. You know what's kind of weird about them is this. You know what's kind of off about them is this. And I realized that it was out of my own insecurity that I was doing that. I don't know if any of you have ever felt this way, but the truth is that in a world that is so filled with, uh, you know, statements about the way people ought to be, about what is good and what is bad, about what is right and what is wrong, and, and uh, in, in all of the effort that we put into trying to, it seems, be on the right side of things, what is our go-to solution for most things? Well, what it means to be a good person is to identify the bad people, right? To point out the problems in other people's lives. Because if I can point out how someone is maybe worse than me, then I can just take a break from working on myself, right? In fact, maybe I'm lucky and I don't have to do anything, change anything, grow in any way. And because of that, uh, and that's true because of how bad everybody else is. The primary reason people in the church in Corinth were rejoicing when they saw evil and when they saw bad was because it made them feel better, it made them feel more mature, it made them feel more holy uh, when they looked at other people and said, look at what those people are doing. If I can identify that that person is the problem in the church, then I'm not the problem in the church. If I can identify that that family is the way a family shouldn't be, then my family is a little bit better. If I can identify the way that that generation is and all the problems, then my generation is better. If I can identify the way that that gender is, then my gender is better. If I can identify, and goes on and on and on. And we actually form groups of people based not on the things that we are for, 
but based on discussing and being frustrated over and overanalyzing the things that we're against, the things that we are sad when we see, right? It's too bad that that person does that, right? We gossip about it. We talk about it. It's amazing how long we have to process some of our prayer requests, right? Or how good we are at turning like the most horrible conversation or focus into a prayer request right at the end, uh, just so that it doesn't feel like that's what we were doing is gossiping, right? When in reality, what we're doing is we're complaining about, about people, about what we see. If you, if you want to feel like a more spiritual person in the church, then it's easy. There's always going to be somebody that you can point to who is not doing a good job. There's always going to be a group of people that you can point to that you think is messing things up the way that they are. So, that's my shortcut. If you want to be a good person, it's easy. Point out a bad person. Isn't it crazy to think that we would actually like seeing somebody do something sinful, something wrong. But this is so true. Think about how, uh, how it feels when someone becomes your enemy. And, uh, and when this person who's your enemy just does one more bad thing, right? When it escalates one more step, when it becomes even clearer how messed up they are, how messed up their approach to things are, or their way of thinking is. Are you saddened by that because something bad has happened, something sinful has happened, there's evil happening in the church? Or are you actually happy that, that they've, they've gone one step further and it's even easier to make your case against this person? This was a major problem in the church in Corinth. And to be honest, I think that it is, it is all too common when we get together with the people that we're closest with, not just the church, but in our families. Because one of the things that we're realizing in this series too is that the church is our family, but so much of this is stuff that we see in our own families, right? The people that we live with that we take for granted, right? That, that, that nowhere can you understand this principle better than perhaps with your siblings, let's say. The people that we most naturally compare ourselves to. But I want to move on to my next tip because it's even more helpful and might bring you even more relief. This one is about how to probably be more successful and better as a spiritual person. The next one is a little bit more internal, but I think it's really valuable. How do you get over jealousy in your life? The Bible's pointed it out, being envious is wrong. And if, you know, you, you, you've maybe struggled with this. You've seen the things that other people have. You've seen the circumstances of other people's lives. And you go, you go, man, I want that. And I see it is consuming me, and it is hard, and I don't know how to get away from it. It's really, really difficult to deal with something like envy and jealousy. So, okay, I want to grow spiritually. I want to be successful. Ed, is there any way that I can shortcut the process of dealing with jealousy? Rather than learn how to be content with what is in my life and uh, what God has given me, rather than, than learn to care less about these things, is there a way that I can just do something that's much easier? How to get over your jealousy, here's my tip. It's simple. Celebrate the suffering of other people, right? If there's a person in your life and you are envious of what they have, there's a sixth sense of satisfaction that comes when they lose the thing that they have. When the circumstances of your life are difficult and someone else has easy life circumstances, there can be a sixth satisfaction in seeing somebody suffer. 
In the very same way, we, if we're honest about the way that we operate as people, have caught ourselves feeling some sort of satisfaction over the, the bad things that have happened in the lives of other people. Why? Why on earth would we feel good when something unfortunate happens to another person in our church family or even in our own family because we're jealous, because of the envy that we feel? And the truth is, this is one of the darkest things that envy brings about in us. Because if, if, our, if my heart is consumed with a desire for what others have or a discontent for what I have, then as hard as it is to move past that, um, if I don't move past it, what I'll find myself doing more and more as I live my life is I'll find myself being embittered towards people and then actually feeling good when bad things happen to them. I'll even find a way to spin it in, in a noble light. Both of these things. I'll say, no, no, no. I love this person, and because I love them, I'm actually glad that they're learning about the difficulties of life, right? I love them, so I think it's good that they're losing these things that they care about. Uh, I love them, and so I, I think that it's good that I identify this sin in their life, right? No, 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 no. Don't get us wrong. We're not, I'm not gossiping. I'm not, I'm not making them my enemy. I'm out of love love identifying the things in this person's life, the hard truths in this group of people that I see, the, the problem that exists maybe in the church or in my family. It's because of love that I'm pointing these things out. But it's not because of love. Uh, it's out of a desire to be more, to be elevated compared to these other people in community around me. Now, it's true that uh, pain and suffering can cause people to actually grow closer in a good way. Uh, we've seen this throughout history. We've actually seen how even things like war can cause a nation to put aside things that are trivial, that are less important, and to put into perspective as they work together towards fighting against something that is evil, that is wrong. We, we see that happen. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to, to when we see an enemy, when we see evil, to, uh, to, as we pursue lives of holiness, to say, I want people around me in doing that. I want accountability. I want community around that. But the truth is that what Paul saw happening in the church wasn't something constructive or good. What he saw was he saw people kind of bickering and fighting against one another in a desire to just be better than the person next to them, in a desire to feel better about their maturity. It is so easy for us to get caught up into doing something like this. And what he says instead is he says here that, uh, that we are not to rejoice at wrongdoing, we're not to be happy when we see people uh, doing bad things or when we see suffering come in the lives of other people, but we are to rejoice with the truth. We're to rejoice with the truth. There's a lot of different words used in translations for wrongdoing here, but there's all, only one word used every time in every translation for this second part, and it is the word truth. It never gets translated to anything else but truth. Why does Paul say that the opposite of rejoicing in wrongdoing is to rejoice in truth? It's because of what our identity is going to be built on. The fact is, this is such a problem 
for groups of people when they gather together. The tendency is so much of a reality there for us to say, let's be uh, more about what we are against. Our, Our identity can so easily be about what we are against. The evil that we see, the wrong that we see, I mean, uh, the reality of politics today alone, taking just that fact, uh, just that part of life alone, is it has almost entirely been consumed by uh, your political uh, affiliation and your, 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 your everything is more about what you are against, what you don't want to see happen in the world, than it is about the thing that you are looking to see happen. Is it not? Is it, is it not? Do we not spend more time thinking about what we're trying to avoid happening, what we're trying to fight from happening? Our identity as a nation is even becoming more and more, it seems, about what it is that we're against. And as we become more and more divided as a nation, uh, that's what's dividing us. It's not the thing that we're for. It's our hatred of the things that we're against. And in the very same way, Paul sees that the church can be a group of people, and is this not true, even just in our country, that it is so easy for the church to become a group of people who are known for the things that they're against. They will know us by the things we're against, right? As the Bible says, they'll know us by our love, we think, well, love means, you know, we love the world enough to be against these things. We, we find it our job to, when we gather together, when we're around people, that we talk about and focus on the things that we're against. But instead, what Paul believes and what we know is true is that our identity is not about what we are against. Our identity is about the truth in which we rejoice. We are either going to be a people who are focused on this truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of what we know about God that never changes, that never will change regardless of the culture or the time or the moment or the, or the nation or the generation or anything. We can either be a group of people who say, let's spend our time, let's literally spend our time focusing on the truth of God in which we will rejoice and believe that by centering our time on that and our lives on that and our focus on that, that we will be better at loving and that the world will be changed by it. That the church is meant to be a family whose identity is built on the truth of God's word in which we will rejoice and not on the things that we're against. The other thing that our identity can be so often found in is this idea of how right we are. The church is the group of right people. The the, the church is the group of people who are better, whose lives are are more put together, right? Uh, This is a very tricky thing to talk about because the fact is, no, God's grace doesn't give us the excuse to sin. No, the church isn't supposed to be a place that looks worse than the place outside the church, and yet at the same time, a lot of what was behind what was driving the Corinthian church was this this wrong understanding of how God viewed people. They believed that as they were making enemies of everyone else, as they were pointing out the problems in everyone else, that as they were being elevated in their own minds, they were being elevated in God's mind. That God was actually looking down at the church and he was saying, you know, I do like you more because you're right, they're wrong. I do respect you more because you're right and they're wrong. 
But the truth is what we see in the Bible is something different. What we see in the Old Testament alone is that while the culture, uh, for example, uh, was such in which the firstborn in a family was given everything. The firstborn in a family was given inheritance and was given favor in every way. Who were the people that God chose to use in the Old Testament time and again? It was not the firstborn, but it was the second born. While, while women uh, in the Bible, in those times, uh, let's say just in the Old Testament times, while women uh, were culturally uh, more valued if they were fertile, if they had lots of kids, if they had big families because it brought you wealth, it brought you security in terms of military and defense, it brought you security in your community, it built a bigger community. I mean, objectively speaking, people at the time believed that a woman who could have children and have a big family was more valuable and more useful. And yet, who does God use again and again in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament? He uses women who are barren. He uses women who are not as fertile as other women. Uh, What we see in the Bible again and again is that God actually chooses to use those who are weak, those who are weak in the eyes of others. Why? Because he wants for his glory to be known and to be seen. It is, it is, we are wired in this weird way where we actually believe that the, that the stronger we appear and the, and the better that we seem put together, that we will be God's people more. When in reality, what God's people really are is the people who are so willing to look within their own hearts and to say what is really going on here and how honest am I about myself that the only way you can be used by God is when you admit your weakness. Rather than our identity being in how right we are, our identity as a church is actually in how weak we are. Our identity as followers of Jesus is that in our weakness, he is strong. Now, I'm not saying that we grovel in sin, that we, that we live licentious lifestyles in which we can do all the horrible things in the world because the worse we are, uh, the better God looks in some way like that. And Paul speaks against that directly. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that our, our tendency is to, is to independently become stronger and better than the people around us, and to think that that's who God wants to use the most, when it seems that the Bible shows us another pattern. Paul himself even says, with all the things that I have to boast about and brag about in my life that make me look good to God's people, I have found that those things that impress people the most seem to get in the way of God using me the most. Why do we divide ourselves from one another? Why do we find some security in our place in the church by pointing out the faults and the problems in others? Why do we feel better about things when things are worse for other people? Because we believe that it makes us stronger. We believe that it somehow buys us security when in truth it does the opposite. We're forging our own path without being able to depend on God himself. Now, this is the kind of passage on love. This is the kind of truth about love that if you are not a person who is self-aware, if you are not a person who is willing to reflect upon the things that go on in your heart, then likely you will hear this and go, what on earth is he talking about? And how could he possibly think that this is something that all the people in the church deal with? I've certainly never dealt with this. 
Ellie was saying that as we worship, that we will, uh, we will praise God, we will reflect, we will pray. The reason why uh, oftentimes the songs that we sing, even in worship, are songs about the way that we feel about God, about what's going on in our heart as we, as we reflect on God. I mean, one of our most beloved hymns, Amazing Grace, is a song that is about how we have been affected by the grace of God. And why do we sing that song and why do we find uh, unity around a song like that? Because if there's anything that we are united around, it is, it is God's grace and we know what it's like for God's grace to mean so much to us. The reason that we sing these songs, not just that are about God, but sometimes songs that are about us, about our hearts, about how we feel, is because when we come together each week, we sing and reflect that it's not enough to just read this in God's Word. This is a hard truth to embrace. And it might be, it's probably the case that everything in you as you're hearing this is trying to fight against it. You're trying to say, I don't do that. I've never done that. I would never do that. And if that's how you're feeling, I would encourage you to just reflect. To as we sing and as we worship, to take it as an opportunity to ask God to look within your own heart to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, are there ways that I have, even with those closest to me, seen myself doing this? If there's anybody that we know what it's like to be jealous of and to even sort of revel in the, the suffering of, it is sometimes, shockingly, our very own brothers and sisters, those in the church, those in our own families, in a constant sense of competition to try to be the best. I don't think this is uncommon to man. It wasn't uncommon to the church in Corinth. It isn't uncommon in our church, in our own families, in our own hearts. The question is, are we willing to look within and to ask God to, to highlight that, to show that to us so that we can be united by other things, uh, be united by better things, by the truth of God that never changes? Let's pray. Father, it is easy to talk about being weak. It is hard to be weak. It is easy to talk about um, embracing your truth, um, but your truth is, is about you primarily. It's not about me, and I like embracing things that are about me. You know, it is true, Lord, as, as, as sort of uh, sarcastic as it is to say, I have the, the tips for quick spiritual growth. That, that this is what we do, Father. It is so true that uh, we have found it's much easier to focus on the faults in others as a way of feeling good about ourselves than to actually look inward. That it is so much easier to find satisfaction in the loss and the suffering of others than to simply let go of our need for our own lives to be good. God, would you... Um, would you work on each one of us and show us how this is something that we're prone to do, God? And in doing so, would you make our families stronger? Would you make our church stronger? Would you give us the right identity as a people, Lord? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.